Yeah, go for it. Oh, that's what I I can start because have food. No, it's one o'clock now. It's one o'clock. Yeah, that's why I checked my phone. Um, okay. All right. So uh, it's my pleasure to introduce <laughs> Marina Norris, who's come up from the LSE. Yeah. She talked to us today in our last Board of Criminologies seminar for the term, and I haven't really prepared a spiel beyond that. Really. So <laughs> welcome to Oxford, and we're looking forward to hearing your talk. Thank you, and thank you, Mary and Alpha, for inviting me. I wanted to say first that um, I was just talking to the students beforehand that when I was doing my PhD, um, which I finished last year, but it doesn't feel like last year. It just feels like either forever, ages ago, or yesterday, depending on the time of day. But when I was doing my PhD, about halfway through, I was struggling with it, and I didn't know what what I was doing, and what it was about, where I was going with it. As if anybody here has done a PhD or is thinking about doing a PhD, that's pretty normal. We won't feel like that most of the time. But then um, I remember I found out that the book Borders of Punishment was coming out, and I had this feeling, I couldn't really explain it, I had this feeling that the book was going to be very helpful for my PhD. So I bought it, I bought it, express delivery, arrived the next day, I read it, I highlighted the whole thing, and I was like, yes, this is what I'm doing. And ever since then, I follow the work from Borders Criminology very closely. It's been really, really influential in my work, so I'm really excited and grateful to be here as well. So thank you. So what I'm doing today, I wanted to walk you through basically my PhD in less than an hour because I also want to have discussions about this. But um, it is a really good opportunity, because like I did, like I said, I finished my PhD last year, and as you do these days in academia, I spent most of last year, the time between finishing my PhD and today, teaching and taking lots of part-time teaching positions, you know, to pay the rent and all these things. So I haven't had much time, space in my mind to think about research and what to do with the PhD now that I've done the PhD. But now that I have a little more breathing room at the school, I'm a fellow at the LSE right now, I am thinking of reworking the PhD towards a book proposal and what can I do with it as a book proposal, but also what can I take away from it and develop into further research ideas. And so what I wanted to do today is very much hearing your feedback on the work so far, but also towards the end I wanted to talk a little bit more about what I think I can do with it going further. So what were in the conclusions of my PhD, and I don't know about you, but when I was writing the conclusion of my PhD, I just wanted it to be over, so I just wrote, yes, and possible future research ideas, yada, yada. But now I'm looking back at it and thinking those are actually good ideas, and I want to take them on and see what I can do with it. So counterterrorism is border control. When I started doing my PhD, I didn't realize that that's what I was going to get to, that the counterterrorism policy in the United Kingdom was acting as border control in some ways. And so it was surprising to me to get to that conclusion, and I wanted to walk you through how I got there. And it's really sad, in a way, that a lot of what I started my PhD with years ago is still going on right now. And this is one of the first instances I talk about something else that is still going on later on in the talk. But the big launch had for my PhD was what happened after Lee Ridby was murdered in 2013. So Lee Ridby was murdered, murdered in broad daylight in London by two individuals who were yelling um, extremist rhetoric 
as they were killing him. They apparently killed him because he was a representative of a bigger group, the armed forces, the British armed forces, that was immediately categorized as an act of terror. Many newspapers and the government themselves talked about how this was the first deadly terrorist attack in British soil since the 7-7 tube um, attacks. And the government, there were lots of speeches from key government people. David Cameron chaired a Cobra meeting because this was a big national security issue. And we needed a new task force on extremism. And all these things happened after the terrorism, the, the supposed terrorist attack of Lee Ripley. And I, when that happened, my first thought was, I'm not sure this is terrorism. I know it falls under the legal definition the British legal definition of terrorism under the under the Terrorism Act 2000, but there were a lot of other similar crimes that happened around the same time that were not considered terrorism, even though they also fell under the legal definition of terrorism under the Terrorism Act 2000. But one was considered terrorism, the other one wasn't. So the example that I had on my thesis was the murder of Mohammed Salim in 2013 as well. He was murdered by Pablo Lapshin, who was a terrorist with links, not so much links, but sympathies towards neo-Nazi groups and far-right groups and white supremacist groups. And he killed Mohammed Salim because he was a Muslim and he was shouting hate rhetoric as he murdered him in Birmingham. And... The murder of Mohammed Salim hardly made the news. It wasn't considered to be an act of terror by the government. It wasn't considered to be an act of terror by the media. There was no calls for a COBRA meeting, for a new extremism task force to investigate far-right extremism. There was nothing of the sort. One was terrorism, one wasn't, according to the government, so the political frame of terrorism. So that got me thinking, and that was the leading research question of my thesis, is like, what is behind the selective application of the terrorism label? Because terrorism is a label. It's something that you attach to an action and deem it to be terrorism or not. So there is, if you look at the Terrorism Act 2000, the legal definition of terrorism in the UK is really broad. It's so broad that the um, independent reviewer for terrorism in the UK, David Anderson, has said that it's a threat to human rights because it is so broad and it could be applied to anyone and anything. And he is correct, but I also think where I come in in this debate is that, yes, it could be applied to anyone and anything, but it isn't. It is applied in a very selective way. And that's what I started looking at. And you can see it, again, another comparison happening just this week, and I wrote about this for the New Statesman last week, was Thomas Mayer, who murdered Joe Cox back during the Brexit um, referendum campaign in May, not May, in June. He was linked to the far right. He had lots of letters that he had exchanged with far right organizations in South Africa and the US. He had lots of neo Nazi literature in his house, including a Nazi eagle. He, was, he killed her from the belief that she represented treason to Britain because of her support of refugees, etc. It was political. It was very much political. And it did feel very much, it fell neatly under the legal, terrorism, legal definition of terrorism, under the Terrorism Act 2000. But very few people called it terror when it happened. Very few people called it a terror attack. Even though it's extremely similar, even the method that she was killed, um, he used a a shotgun, sawed-off shotgun, I think. He shot her, but he also stabbed her several times, which was how Lee Rigby was murdered. It was quite similar. However, 
it was treated very differently. And last week, when the verdict came from the court that he was convicted of murder, he had a life sentence, which is a very, very similar sentence, actually. I think it's pretty much the same sentence as the two killers who killed Lee Rigby. Um, you had what I thought was most fascinating is that some newspapers did call it terrorism. The CPS called it terrorism. Some newspapers did, not all of them did. But for me, the most significant was that the government remained silent. There was no, no response to the Thomas Mann conviction. There was no call to investigate the rise of far right in the UK or far right extremism in the UK. There was no COBRA meeting. There was no task force announced. There was nothing. There was silence. Theresa May didn't say anything at all about what happened. And that's curious because that is the latest terrorist attack in the country if you're following the way that Lee Rigby's murder was framed. And we have silence from the government. Silence from the government. So for me, this is an example of the selective application of the terrorism label. So this is how I started my PhD, looking at this question, why is it being selectively applied in the UK? And these are examples of actions that could fall under, well, they do fall under the Terrorism Act 2000, but they're not really considered acts of terror. Most of them are considered to be hate crimes or religiously aggravated or racially aggravated crimes. But they do fall under the legal terrorism definition, the Terrorism Act 2000. So these, most of these actions were done as a response to the Rigby killing. So you do have that cycle of feedback loop between Islamic extremism and far-right extremism. So two former British soldiers threw petrol bombs in an Islamic cultural center. A man pleaded guilty to arson with intent to endanger life. And I say my favorite, but that's the wrong choice of words. But I think it's quite a telling example. is the example of Ryan McGee, who was found with a nail bomb in his house and a large cache of weapons in his house as well, literature connecting him to neo-Nazi groups and white supremacist groups and the EDL, and he written in his diary about how he was going to bomb all the immigrants and drag them all to hell, and yet he was not considered to be a terrorist. Nobody really knows about it unless you have Google alerts or searching for these things. It's not something that's widely known. And the thing that stuck with me the most with, this, with um, Brian McKee is that if I remember correctly, the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, decided to charge him not with the terrorism-related offenses, but I think he was under the Explosive Substances Act that he was charged because they couldn't find any evidence that he intended to commit those acts. So there was no evidence that even though he'd written those things in his diaries, even though he had a nail bomb built, that he had the weapons, that he had the connections to the far-right groups, there was no evidence of intent. So he wasn't tried as a, as a terrorist or considered to be a terrorist. And I wondered when I found out about this is that if he wasn't called Ryan McKee, if he, he was from the demographic that is usually attached with extremism, so if he was Muslim, would he be given that benefit of the doubt when it comes to intention? So I approach terrorism from a discursive perspective, not looking at terrorism so much as an, as an action, but a label. So what do I mean by that is that there is a split in terrorism studies between people who call themselves traditional terrorism studies and critical terrorism studies. So in traditional terrorism studies, most of the time people approach terrorism as, a, as an objective action. And the research, mostly, most research on traditional terrorism studies is about the causes of terrorism. It's about the process, what they call the process of terrorism, what leads terrorism to happen. But I wanted to look at the label of terrorism because you need to have a label to attach it to a process. So looking at terrorism as a social construction. So what that means is that you look at terrorism as a social fact produced in discourse. And the research in critical terrorism studies is very much focused on how people 
deploy the label terrorism to make sense of acts. People either label terrorism acts themselves or other people label certain acts as terrorism. So the idea is that terrorism, even though we have different definitions, we don't have a single definition that everybody that anybody agrees on, everybody agrees on, it's because it's a normative concept, it's not value-free, so it's very difficult to have a definition that encompasses everything terrorism is or could be. It's a label. And Mark Sageman, who is one of the leading theorists of um, terrorism studies, the traditional kind, says that he's not interested in the label. He's not interested in how people choose to label things. He's interested in the process. And my argument against that is that you, it's very difficult to understand the process of terrorism if you don't have an understanding of the label of terrorism and how it's used. The label and the process exist in a dialectic relationship. They're two sides of the same coin, so you need to look at both in order to get a bigger picture about what's happening. So the way I set out to do this in my PhD, I looked at the government policy because my question was, like I said, what is behind the selective application of the terrorism label? And I could look at it in different ways. I could look at it in the media. I could look at it in government speeches. But I thought I could, what would be a really rich resource that was kind of under-researched at the time was looking at the actual government policy papers. So there is one big government policy on counterterrorism. It's called CONTEST, the United Kingdom Strategy for Countering Terrorism. And the current government announced they're reviewing it and going to re release a new one in the early in the new year. So I'm interested to see how what that's going to look like. So I focused my analysis on two aspects. The prevent section of the strategy, which I think most people are familiar with. The prevent program is the program that is concerned with stopping terrorism before it happens, preventing people from turning to terrorism, quite controversial for many reasons, but I also wanted to look at the section in contest that introduces the threat, that explains to the public what the threat is. And I wanted to do this because I developed this methodology in my thesis called Critical Policy Narrative Analysis. It took me almost two and a half years to do, and I hated it, and I loved it, and I hated it, and I loved it, which is the process of doing methodology, I guess. And um, critical policy narrative analysis is a discourse-oriented development of policy narrative research and stems directly from critical terrorism studies focused on the language and the use of the label terrorism. So critical policy narrative analysis is a way of studying government policy through the prism of narrative, through the prism of stories. So take into account, for example, that um, Anything that we, we understand, that we're, as human beings, we understand the world through stories. I told you a story about my PhD. I'm telling you a story about my PhD right now. We were talking beforehand, and you are telling me the story about what you study and what you work, etc. We understand the world through stories. And policy papers are government stories. And what they do is they create a problem. Well, not create a problem. They identify a problem. They allocate blame. And then they propose a solution. That's the language. That's usually the structure of a government policy. And... The narrative in policy narratives is very much working on this dynamic process of inclusion and exclusion, which we also do on an everyday basis. Think of history books or history that you learn in school or the courses that you're studying right now. We can't include everything. It is impossible to include everything. So everything relies on this process of inclusion and exclusion. And what critical policy narrative analysis tries to do is really zero in on this inclusion and exclusion dynamic. So when it comes to the official government's story on terrorism and what terrorism is, what is it including, what is it excluding, and what does this reveal about power relations and different role allocations in the story? So 
It's a very interpretivist, critical methodology. So what I wanted to do, because obviously we don't have that much time, I wanted to take an example from each of the three mechanisms that I identify doing the critical policy narrative analysis. So I, when doing the analysis, I realized, I, I noticed that the government was doing this process of inclusion and exclusion pretty much through three different mechanisms. One of it is called assimilation, the one is disassociation, and the other invalidation. And I will go through each of them coming up. Um, oh yes, but before I forget, the, there are three versions of contest and prevent. 2006, 2009, and 2011. And like I said, the government announced a new one to come into the new year. I analyzed all three of them. And the reason why I found that really interesting is because you could track how the narrative was developing, but also what remained the same and what changed considering the three were delivered under three different administrations. The 2006 was Tony Blair's administration, 2009 was Gordon Brown, and 2011 was the coalition government of David Cameron and the Liberal Democrats, so the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. And it was interesting to see what changed and what didn't, what was accepted from previous strategies, what was thrown away, etc. So, the first mechanism that the government is using in the policy papers to tell the story of terrorism is the process of assimilation. So what I call assimilation in this respect is that you have several examples of this throughout the text, is that the government in the beginning is trying to tell a story about the history of terrorism, and what it does is that it, pro it provides you with a list of different terrorist attacks and ter different incidents and different groups in kind of a, a, a chronological sent in a chronological way, and no context is given. It's just this list of terrorist attacks and terrorist groups with very little to no context. So it serves to assimilate these things into one generic threat. So this is one of the examples that I have. It's talking about international terrorism and where it comes from, and they date that the first modern international terrorism incident has been dated back to 1968 when a faction of the Palestine Liberation Organization hijacked an Israeli commercial flight from Rome. Two years later, the same organization took over British commercial aircraft, etc. It talks a little bit about the PLO as a terrorist organization. And then they move on, and you can see through the paragraphs, it's still going on in the same section. They talk about how the growing influence of radical and militant Islamism was seen elsewhere, notably in the first intifada in the occupied territories from 1987 onwards. So what you have there, and you have a presentation of the PLO, and you see on the first quote it says, other groups are motivated by Palestinian issues. There is no explanation on what those Palestinian issues are. There is no explanation. Nothing is put into context. There is no context on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Same with the, with the Intifada of 1987. The only explanation, the only context given for the 1987 Intifada is the growing influence of militant Islamism. Again, there is no context. And some people could say, well, that's because most people know about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Why we waste space in context? Well, that's the mechanism of inclusion and exclusion, deciding what's important and not important. But there are other examples of this assimilation happening with things that are not as familiar, for example. One of them is the war in Chechnya. So that quote says, from the early 1990s onwards, terrorist attacks were also conducted in Russia and against Russian interests and connections to the war in Chechnya. Many saw the war in Chechnya as a successor to the war in Afghanistan. Again, there was no context. There was no context about Russia and the history of Chechnya. 
the, the conflict in Chechnya is presented through this prism of ideology, of Islamic ideology, and terrorism. And there's another example that I didn't put in there, but just to briefly mention, is that there are a couple of paragraphs in the Algerian Civil War, and it's only about, it's another example of the rise in militant Islamism and the growth of Islamic extremism through the Algerian Civil War. Again, no context of colonialism in France, anything. So what this creates is this neat lineage of terrorism, kind of like a genealogy of terrorism, going from the PLO to Al-Qaeda, from the 1987 Intifada to the Algerian Civil War, and finally, which is presented at the end, 9-11. This assimilated process creates a narrative which makes a direct link between the Palestine Liberation Organization's 1968 hijacking of the Israeli plane to the Bali nightclub bombings of 2002 to 9-11 and then 7-7. It's all presented in a chronological sequence with very little context. And the only explanation that is given throughout this section is the ideology. It's Islamic extremism. That's the only explanation that is given throughout this section. So this assimilates this different threats, these different incidents, different groups with different motivations into this one golden thread of a rising Islamic extremism internationally that's now come to threaten the UK. So this is an example of the process of assimilation. What you have as well is dissociation. So dissociation, unlike assimilation, is the opposite. is removing yourself from the story rather than assimilating things together. And those are the two key examples that I like to give, but there are, again, several when it comes to dissociation, which, in fact, serve to remove, further remove context. It works together with assimilation to further remove context. And in this case, dissociation further removes the context of Western interference in the Middle East or anything to do with the UK and the US and the Middle East. So these two are examples about um, the only times that the papers talk about the Iraq war. Those are the only two times. Following the fall of Saddam Hussein in 2003, radical Islamist groups emerged in and traveled to Iraq to take part in what they regarded as a new jihad against coalition forces and the Iraqi government. After 2003, Iraq was used as a base for terrorist attacks in other countries. What happened in Iraq in 2003? Why did Saddam Hussein fall? All of these things are excluded. The Iraq war is excluded from context, from the context of the story. It's as if it happened and the US and the UK had nothing to do with it. So it removes itself from the story. So remember what I was saying beforehand about narratives, policy narratives. It's about identifying a problem, Islamic extremism, the rise of Islamic extremism internationally. It's about associate, allocating blame the ideology is to blame, it's not us, because we've removed ourselves from the story, we've removed the UK from the story. So you see that process happening. And the only time that they actually mention the Iraq war in how it might be connected to terrorism actually happens in a different policy paper, not on prevent, and um, in this case it's contest. And they say, well, there were lots of terrorist attacks before the Iraq war, so we can't say that the Iraq war has anything to do with terrorism. And it's that failure to place things in context that you see happening again and again. So this is an example of the twin brother of dissociation, which is invalidation. So you have the different threats assimilated into one rising Islamic extremist threat internationally coming to the UK. You have the removal of the UK and the West from the story. And then you have the invalidating of arguments that can be 
given for why terrorism happens, contextual arguments. So that is one example of it. It's a big quote, but I thought it was important that we went through it. So many Muslims as well as non-Muslims believe that the West, notably the US and the UK, has either caused conflict, failure, and suffering in the Islamic world, or done too little to resolve them. Military intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan, and consequent civilian casualties, perceived Western inaction in Palestine, alleged support for authoritarian Islamic governments, have all caused um, controversy and anger. The treatments of detainees in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib is widely felt to demonstrate an acceptable inconsistency in the commitment of the West to human rights and the rule of law. So the words that I have um, highlighted, they are what we call in CPNA, critical uh, policy narrative analysis, they are predicates. So they are words that are attached to, to words that come after it to give it some kind of meaning, to modify their meaning. So these are all qualifiers. They are all conditional words. So the one that I tend to focus the most here is when it comes to Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib, when are considered, they were huge um, breaches of human rights, but it is presented as being widely felt to be breaches of human rights, not actual breaches of human rights. So that invalidates what are considered to be terrorist grievances. And throughout the paper, you have the, the three policy papers, you have the word perceived attached to the word grievances. So whenever you have any attempt from the paper to explain why people may be radicalized, for example, it's about um, terrorists exploiting perceived grievances, or we need to challenge these perceived grievances. So that word follows through anything that is well, what I would consider the attempts to contextualize the terrorist threat. It's all perceived and well, all alleged. So it invalidates these concerns. And by invalidating, it returns back to that concept of assimilation. And who is to blame? What is to blame for terrorism? Well, it is this almost nebulous force of international terrorism that comes from abroad, and it is Islamic in nature. It, the focus is the ideology. And this thing about this idea that it comes from abroad is really important because if I can come back here, all the examples of terrorism come from abroad. All the examples that are given are international cases of terrorism. None of it is local. None of it is localized. There's no discussion in the first two years of prevent and contest, 2006, 2009, of far-right extremism or even Northern Ireland. There's no discussion of it. It's considered to be international. And in 2011... You have the new version, the review of contest, and the review of the prevent program. And it's a very interesting policy paper to read because you can really hear the voice of disgruntled liberal Democrats at the back going, you know, oh, but, you know, there's the far right and you, you need to stop stereotyping Muslims, etc. You can really hear it come through. And also you can hear it be shouted down by the policy as well. Because for the first time in 2011, you have the introduction of Northern Ireland-related terrorism and far-right terrorism but it is almost immediately discounted. And that is what is really interesting. So in the beginning of Prevent 2011, they talk about how there are 14 people currently serving prison sentences in this country for terrorism offenses who are known to be associated with extreme right-wing groups. Those, none of these groups themselves are terrorist organizations. For 11 years, oh, sorry, that was the guy. Um, in 2010, two people motivated by the extreme right-wing ideology were convicted for preparing a terrorist attack using a simple poison, and another was jailed for 11 years for assembling one of the largest arms cachet found in recent years in England. 
But then the following paragraph is, but far-right extremism is not a threat. And they go, there's another example that I didn't put in there, when they talk about how the largest numbers of terrorism attacks in Europe have been associated with separatist groups, not Islamic extremism groups. But then in the following paragraph is, but the biggest threat to the UK remains international terrorism, Islamic international terrorism. And then when they mention Northern Ireland, they talk about how support for Northern Ireland-related terrorism remains low, and dissident groups do not represent mainstream opinion across Northern Ireland. And this disclaimer that Northern Ireland terrorism doesn't represent everyone in Northern Ireland is not present when it's, dis when it's discussing um, Islamic extremism. The disclaimer that not all Muslims feel this way happens randomly throughout the paper and it's, there is no clear consistency. And it always comes with that language of perceived grievances and people will exploit these perceived grievances. And a comparison is... Again, coming straight from 2011, straight under from when they start discussing far-right extremism and Northern Ireland-related terrorism, is this quote, which I believe is quite telling as well. We believe that prevent should be flexible enough to address the challenge posed by terrorism of any kind. Prevent programs should be able to support people being drawn into all forms of terrorism. However, it is also the case that the greatest terrorist threat we, are currently, we currently face comes from Al-Qaeda and groups associated with it. For as long as that remains the case, resources must be prioritized accordingly and focused on this area. But there is no evidence given for this claim. It's just presented that it is the biggest threat that we face. And the narrative from the 2011 prevent and contest accepts the construction of the threat from the previous two, from 2006 and 2009, that is this large international threat to the UK that is coming from abroad and that we need to challenge and that is united under the banner of Islamic extremism. But, yes, before I go into the, this is the case, one thing that um, I wanted to mention before I forget is that, um, because this is something that if you work with Prevent, you know, so I always forget that I, not everybody knows. Um, before 2011, Prevent Associate, the Prevent program, gave out its funding to local authorities. They were considered to be high-priority local, local authorities, and the funding was based on demographics. Any local authority that had a minimum of 5% um, Muslims living in the local authority automatically got the Prevent money, the counterterrorism money. And back in 2008, I submitted... I think about 50 freedom of information requests to the London local authorities that were in the prevent program, and I asked for information. And two of them got back to me, Merton Council and Tooting Council, um, Tooting and Wandsworth, got back to me saying that, with this report, saying that they used the money to conduct a report on radicalization in the area, and that they found no evidence that there was any radicalization in the area. However, because of the funding, the demographic requirement, they got the money anyway, so they were going to use it. So most of the money of Prevent was used in things called like community cohesion work. A lot of it was used for plays and um, and rap battles. And to this day, Charlton Football Club in London still receives Prevent money. So it's quite interesting to see how that's working. But in 2011, the government said, we will do away with demographics, because that's stereotyping Muslims, of course. Um, and we are not longer going to send the funding based on demographics. We will do it differently. And they created this new list of priority local authority areas. But it was the exact same list 
as before, and I submitted several freedom of information requests to find out what is the new rationale for the local priority areas, the, and they got back to me saying they can't release that information because to release that information would mean that it is aiding and abetting terrorism. So I don't know how they make this decision to give the money. And the other thing is that I also submitted several freedom of information requests to the local authorities asking, since Prevent 2011 is supposed to act with far-right extremism as well as Islamic extremism, I sent a request saying, is it doing it? Can I see evidence of it? And all of my requests got denied. And that is quite significant because when I did this in 2008 to ask for what is the prevent money being used locally, I got pages and pages, hundreds and hundreds of pages of information, and this time I couldn't get anything. So things are becoming more and more private. So this claim that we are seeing that um, the, the greatest threat is still from Al-Qaeda, something that, or Al-Qaeda related, or Islamic extremism now, no more Al-Qaeda than you say ISIS, is something that is still happening right now, and you can see it with the lack of response from the government when it comes to Thomas Mayer and the murder of Joe Cox, which was a terrorist attack. And um, the question that I have is, is this true? Is it the case that, according to the government papers, the biggest threat that we face is from Islamic extremism? Well, research says otherwise. And also, what's happening, the two most recent terrorist attacks in the UK, um, Pablo Lapshin killing Mohammed Salim in 2013, and Thomas Mayer killing Joe Cox in 2016, those two were connected to the far right, not Islamic extremism. And there was a report done by the Royal United Services Institute last year, actually the report was released earlier this year, on um, lone wolf terrorism in Europe. And they looked at 31 countries over a 15-year period <coughs> in Europe, and they found that 38% of lone wolf terror attacks in Europe were linked to Islamic extremism, but 33 were connected to right-wing extremism. So it's, the threat is quite similar. And out of 72 successful attacks, so attacks that weren't sorted by the police, only 8% could be attributed to Islamic extremism. Right-wing terrorist attacks constituted less of the total executed attacks, but almost 50% of deaths. So far-right extremism, far-right terrorism, if you want to use that word, is actually a thing. It's a threat. It's something that the government should be concerned with. But throughout the narrative, the way it's constructing this narrative of terrorism since 2009, 2006 actually, and that it's not changing, it's not recognizing this threat, and it continues to create this narrative of terrorism that not only, and that's the thing that if you read about prevent, everybody will say it's nothing new, prevent stereotypes Muslims, and really is very detrimental for the Muslim community. Not only that, but it's creating this big narrative of terrorism and that it's removing itself from the narrative over and over again. It's removing anything that can put the UK and the US and the West in context. It's being removed from the narrative. So what does it mean when you remove the local from the narrative of terrorism and you make it all about a terrorism, an international terrorism threat? What I argue is that the selective application of terrorism label in the UK is being selectively applied because it is the government has created this rationale that terrorism is a foreign problem. It has roots ideologically and historically and sometimes even physical roots abroad. It is not a problem with the UK, it's a problem from outside, it's been imported into the UK. And there's two key quotes in this. Um, so the sources, and to a large extent, the inspiration for much of the terrorism ideology are overseas. Terrorist 
Uh, terrorists from or resident in the UK have at times been radicalized as well as trained overseas, and some communities here are closely connected to their countries of origin. So it's this constant placing of the problem abroad. It's not here, it's nothing that we do, we're not even in the story, it comes from abroad. And, um, and it's this, this, this consistent linking of the Muslim community, you know, the British Muslim community, with abroad. So one example of this consistent way of linking it is the quote that I have there saying that um, we need to work to reduce the vulnerability of our diaspora communities and the countries and regions from which they come from to strengthen the voice of mainstream Islam, to counter the propaganda of extremists, and to tackle the grievances which are exploited by these extremists. So again, it's just not only locating the problem abroad, but locating the community that they associate the problem with as also coming from abroad. And this, for me, is the quote that launched the PhD, because it was the quote that I read when I was reading the Prevent Policy back in 2000. Nine before I started my PhD, and I was thinking about doing a PhD, and I was reading reading the policy, and I read this, and I thought, this is wrong, this is weird, and I always tell my students who are thinking about doing a PhD, is what do we do? How do you find what to do? Find something that's weird and that you think it's intriguing, and then go with it and see what happens, because that's what I did. So this was in in the center of the prevent policy in 2009. And it talks about how we want to make it harder for violent extremists to operate in our country and win support for their activities and ideologies. But we also need to be clear about the kind of country which we want for ourselves. I studied nationalism for many years, and this is very clear nationalist, nationalist language. What kind of country we want for ourselves. So that got me thinking from the very beginning, what is, what is this doing in a counterterrorism policy? What is the language about creating boundaries and deciding who are the insiders and who are the outsiders? Who are the people and who are not the people? What is this language doing in a counterterrorism policy? And what are the consequences of this language being present in the counterterrorism policy? And I go back to nationalism. And this was the cover of The Economist last week and made me laugh because it says the new nationalism, but it has three old white men in the cover, and by definition, I think anything that is represented by white old men is not new. But also, this is not new nationalism. This is old nationalism. It's just nationalism as it's always been the case. So what we're going through with Brexit and with Trump and the rise of the far right in, the, in Europe is very much linked to this idea of nationalism, which holds the artificial Westphalian system of nation states that we exist in and we operate under holds it in place. It's this idea that there is one nation for one people, the nation state, one people for one country. And I always go back to the Ernest Gellner definition of nationalism, which says that nationalism is primarily a political principle which holds that the political and the national units should be congruent. So that means that the political and the national unit has to be the same. It's the idea that government by a foreign institution, by a foreign people, is illegitimate. It's the principle of legitimate government. Is what explains the legitimate governments that we have at the moment. So if you have, go back to that language, we need to be clear about what country we want for ourselves. And the language of nationalism, the political and the national have to be congruent, you see that kind of tension, this search for legitimacy, and with nationalism, you always have with it this underlying desire for homogeneity, for making the diverse society simple to govern. It's government needs simplicity, 
It's a complex world that we live in, and one of the ways that they try to get the simplicity is through legitimacy, through principles of homogeneity. So I always go back to this. So if you look back to how the policies created this narrative of terrorism, it is, is assimilating these different threats around the idea of an Islamic ideology that comes from abroad. So it comes from abroad. It's nothing to do with us. And the grievances that terrorists might have are illegitimate. So, and also it's playing with this idea that we need to be clear about what kind of country we want for ourselves. This is a nationalism policy that isn't playing part in a national security policy. So I say, I said towards the end of my PhD, after doing the analysis and all that and all the theoretical stuff that I left out, that this shows that terrorism is part of a wider project of border control, a wider project project of national identity promotion that's currently happening in the United Kingdom. So the selective application of the terrorism label that I talked about at the beginning is a tool in the construction, promotion, and regulation of national identity. In this case, the construction of national security through counterterrorism policy is a tool in the state's search for legitimacy. So what you have, and I didn't include in this, is that, uh, for example, a lot of the PREVENT program is concerned with promoting shared values, promoting British values and what it means to be British and what is un-British behavior. So when I talk about counterterrorism as border control, a lot of the terrorism powers that exist do happen at the border, but also it's more about, more than that, it's about what's happening in the country, once the border has moved, and I will talk about it more in a second, it's about the idea that the border has become elastic and invisible. It's moved from the border and it's all around us. And I just wanted to briefly go through an example that I gave about this idea of counterterrorism as border control is that the first terrorism act in the country after 9-11, the Anti-Terrorism Crime and Security Act 2001, one of the main things that it did and it led to the Belmarsh case was that it put prison um, terrorist suspects, again suspects, foreign terrorist suspects that couldn't be deported, indefinitely detained in Belmarsh prison. So again, it's that, that impulse to exclude the foreigner because it comes from abroad, because it's not to do with something national. It is, it's coming from abroad. And the question is, what happens when people who are nationals, who are citizens, are being completely and over and over again being given this label of the other? So I say that this weakens citizenship. That is an example of, um, of is leading towards a weakening of the concept of citizenship in the United Kingdom. And I just gave two examples. One of them is the temporary exclusion orders, which were introduced in the Cash Terrorism and Security Act 2015, which essentially, um, if somebody goes abroad and the government thinks that they might be, they are a terrorist suspect, uh, they may be involved in terrorism for some reason, they can remove their passports whilst they're abroad and prevent them from returning to the country, to the UK, and it prevents them from doing so for two years. And it effectively renders the person stateless for two years. And Dominic Grieve, former Attorney General, was complaining about this, and he was saying that um, it is a fundamental principle of the common law in this country that an individual who is unconvicted, and that is also key of the way that the relationship between the citizen and the state is changing, is that a lot of these things are executive measures that, are, that happen before there is a court or the criminal justice system involved. So before somebody is convicted, so the presumption of innocence applies, should be free to reside in his own land. The principle of exile as a judicial or even administrative tool has not been tolerated in this country since the late 17th century. Dominic Grieve categorized TEOs as a modern form of exile. And you can see this as well happening with the deprivation of citizenship powers that were extended under the Immigration Act 2014, excuse me, where more people are able to lose their British citizenship if they're suspected of terrorism. It's a bit 
hired that. Yeah. So, um, and the other example is the what I think is the most significant when it comes to this idea of the moving, the sh- shifting of the border and counterterrorism acting as a new form of border control, <coughs> is the prevent statutory duty, which is also implemented in the Counterterrorism Security Act 2015 which is the duty that is imposed on local authorities, on universities, on primary schools, on nurseries, on the NHS, etc., to prevent terrorism and promote British values. So it's this idea that the watching for that behavior, which is other, the behavior that we have considered to be other, it has moved to the normal sphere of our lives. And, for example, um, there are, I've seen a few prevent training manuals, and they are very, very difficult to read, because one of them, for example, my youngest sister is a primary school teacher, and she's had to go to prevent training. She teaches kids who are four and, I think, five, six-year-olds, and she's had to go to prevent training. And the things that she was told to watch out for is if they say they don't celebrate Christmas of the Christmas is forbidden, or if they won't play with girls. Those are the kind of things to watch out for, for behavior that may be considered to be extremists. I've looked at some terrorist um, training, prevent training manuals that were given in the city of London, and some of them say things like, if you have a colleague that suddenly changes dress and is dressing more religiously, or refuses to touch your hand, or is going out to pray at lunchtime, those are warning signs. Be aware of this kind of behavior. (coughs) This is a, a sign of potential terrorism, extremism. So this categorizing of people as others, suspicious others that need to be watched is moving and it's more mainstream than it's ever been. And I am arguing that this challenges the bond between the state and the citizen because it's placing too many citizens with the burden of defending themselves even before they've done anything. And also because a lot of terrorism powers are, terrorism basically is a magic word that unlocks a lot of powers from the government that can act in executive and administrative measures that kind of bypass the legal system. So there is very little scrutiny, and it kind of gets over the idea of the rule of law and the presumption of innocence. So if you go over the presumption of innocence, you don't longer have that relationship between the state and the citizen, and that weakens the bond between the state and the citizens. So... As Lucy Sedner argues, um, citizenship has become a potent tool by which those at the margins of the political community are policed by the state. And that is where I want to move my work at the moment, is looking at exactly this, is how people who are considered to be in the marginal political community, who are considered to be the other because of counterterrorism papers, have been deemed to be the other by the state and are existing in a very invisible and elastic border that is making them have to prove their belonging and their citizenship, but also having their citizenship questioned, their belonging questioned at every point. And the power to use the label of terrorism and activate terrorism powers is a disciplinary instrument used in identifying and controlling those considered to be aliens. So consequently, the selective application of in unlocking terrorism powers engenders a form of contesting membership and ultimately preventing security and preventing belonging in the United Kingdom. So this is how I concluded my thesis with, and I started thinking about what comes next? What can I do with it next? Now that I've done it, how do I, what do I do with it? So this, this idea of the weakening of citizenship, which was just part of the conclusion of the thesis, is definitely something I want to look into more. Specifically because I see this as not as just something that's happening with counterterrorism. I see it as part of this, you know, that's happening everywhere right now within the UK with this concern with immigration and the hostile environment. So um, those are just recent headlines 
where hospitals may require patients to show passports for NHS treatment. That was a recent proposal. Parents were urged to boycott requests for children's country of birth information. A lot of children recently um, got letters from their schools saying, you know, tell their par- your parents to fill out and says where you come from, where's your nationality. If you're British, you don't need to fill this out. So um, there were concerns about what does this mean. There was this report that was in The Guardian a few weeks ago about how migrant women are facing 6,000 pounds birth bill under health tourism laws. So a lot of midwives have been asked to act as border agents and asking for people's um, right to be in the country before they can give care. It's the same thing with the NHS. And the same thing with landlords. Britons with no passports are struggling to rent due to immigration checks. So there is this idea that I've written about um, this idea of the immigrant citizen versus the native citizen. So there is this tension that I'm seeing that I saw in, the, in, in my research in the caps terrorism powers and also in this is that British citizens that have no recent history of immigration are virtually immune from a lot of terrorism powers and are virtually immune from these issues as well. But those British citizens that have a more recent history of immigration become much more vulnerable. So there creates almost a second tier of citizenship, which is what I want to look at next, is this idea that there is a second tier of citizenship, those who are immigrant citizens who are here, not here long enough to be considered native. And it's what I'm playing with, this idea of the invisible and elastic border, is this idea that because of the counterterrorism policy, but a lot else as well, the the border has moved from airports or whatever, to every day. And you have more and more people serving as border agents. And even if you are not asking for somebody's passport with the PREVENT um, initiative, with the the PREVENT statutory duty, you still have to watch out for behavior that's considered to be un-British, and you need to promote British values. This idea of the immigrant terrorism nexus. And quite importantly, I wanted to look at this, the racial implications of everything that I'm saying, because I'm very conscious that I didn't talk about race, but it is racial. There is an aspect of counterterrorism that is very racial, again, because the population that is going to be virtually immune for a lot of these powers are the white British population. So, for example, TEOs, if temporary exclusion orders, if somebody goes abroad, and usually the implication with TEOs is that you go abroad to fight, and most far-right extremists who are white are not going to go abroad to fight. Um, deprivation of citizenship. You can only be deprived of your citizenship if you can get another second citizenship. Most far-right British um, supporters are white and don't have a history, a recent history of immigration, so they won't be eligible for, um, for another passport. So there is this racial aspect, not because so much of who it targets, because the Muslim community, Islam is not a race, although the Muslim community has been racialized, but who is protecting? Who is it protecting? So those are some questions that I had at the end of my PhD, and I actually left the, the racial aspect out of my PhD either, um, after advice from my supervisors, who said, maybe don't do it, I don't think your examiners will like it, and they're correct, because the examiners thought I was exaggerating already by saying that the counterterrorism policy has an implication for British identity, so I can't imagine what they would have said if I had included aspects of race into it as well. So this is my PhD and what I want to do with it now that I've done it. And it's really good to talk through it, and obviously it's just not enough to talk about everything. But those are the key things that I wanted to cover today and what I'm working on to transfer, change this PhD into perhaps a book and what else do I do with it now that it's finished. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you.